Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? He said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And we'll stop in the text right there for now. Please be seated and let's pray and ask the Lord's help in this message today. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of looking in your word. Uh, this may be an unfamiliar new passage to uh, some of us here. Thank you for it. We pray that you'll help us by your Holy Spirit uh, to uh, receive your word, to think about it, to uh, discern, to be challenged if we need to be challenged and comforted as we need to be comforted. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence with us as we interact with your sacred text today. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone said there's nothing more sad or glorious than the handing off of one generation to another generation. Maybe some of you are in a position where you realize now all the parents and the aunts and uncles have gone on to eternity and you're the next ones up. And you think about what that means to be passing through life and this wave of folks just going through the generations and generations. There's sadness uh, here. You see, Elisha didn't even want to talk about it. I, I didn't look this up, but in the Hebrew, where the sons of the prophets in Bethel came to him and said, do you know that today Elijah is going? And then in Jericho, they came out and said the same thing. And he essentially, I think the Hebrew really says, he said, shut up. Uh, he said, be quiet. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, this is a sad day. This is not good. Uh, Elijah is leaving. Uh, he didn't go in a chariot of fire. He went in a whirlwind. There were chariots of fire around, and there are things like that that we'll see, but God was going to take him up in that whirlwind. And he didn't even want Elisha to be there. You stay here. God's told me to go on. Elisha's like, no, I've got to be here till the bitter end. And so that's what we see in the opening of this text. Elijah getting ready to go to heaven. Elisha, the successor. Uh, even in our secular world, we think about people leaving. We say, what are we going to do when so-and-so retires? Oh, how can we make it if so-and-so is gone? Boy, if they're not here, we won't even make it. Uh, they did everything. Um, and it turns out in so many cases, 
who? <laughs> a month later, two months later? Um, in, our, in our secular world and in the business world, a guy named Jim Collins, who a long time ago wrote a book that was pretty good, I thought, Good to Great, and he talked about these level five leaders. And he said the level four leader is good. He builds the company, but he leaves, and the place goes to pot. And everybody goes, oh, he was the greatest, or she was the greatest CEO ever, because look what happened without her. And he says, no, the greatness, the real greatness is not that. The real greatness is the one who has a successor in place and who sees themselves not so much as the king, but sees themselves as somebody who serves the company. Um, Looking at some of our leaders, John Calvin's funeral service was simple. He did not want anything extra. He was married in uh, what ultimately was an unmarked grave. Even a few months after he died, they came to look for his grave. Uh, People that had read his writings and wanted to pay tribute to him couldn't find it. Here's John Newton. Uh, As he was getting ready to die, and he knew he was a couple years from death, uh, here were his instructions uh, for for whatever little gravestone plaque they were going to put on his grave. He said, here's what to write. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Near 16 years in only in Bucks, and then he left a blank years in this church. And then he put a little note about his wife. On February 1, 1750, he married Mary, daughter of the late George Catlett of Chatham-Kent. He resigned her to the Lord who gave her, on 15 December 1790. And that's all he wanted. And he said, And I earnestly desire that no other monument and no inscription but to this purport may be attempted for me. Elijah was going. He knew it. Everybody knew it. It was the, don't talk about it, but he's dead. Not dead, but he's leaving this earth. Uh, For all they knew, he was going to die. They didn't know that God would take him up in the whirlwind, as he did. But they knew it was his last days. And there's sorrow, and there's fear. So with that as our backdrop, four things this morning for us to see from this text in chapter 2 of 2 Kings. One, God's power still reaches us, verses 7 through 15. Second, God's wisdom still settles us, verse 15b to 18. Three, God's grace still thrills us, Verses 19 through 22. And God's judgment still frightens us. Verses 23 through 25. So first of all, God's power still reaches us. Verses 7 through 15. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. As they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now, we'll stop right there, just an explanation. He wasn't saying, I want to be twice as big as you. And whatever you did, Elijah, I want to be twice as big, twice as much. 
What he was saying was a reference to those days uh, when someone would die and an inheritance would come, and the oldest, the one who was going to be the executor of the estate, the one who carried on the family name and, and all of those things, would get the double portion, and the other siblings would get single portions. He said, I want, I want the legacy. I want God to use me like God used you. So that's what he's saying with the double portion. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Verse 11, and as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him. And he went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him. And he did the same thing. He rolled it up and he struck the Jordan as Elijah had done going in. He struck the Jordan. The waters parted, it says. And... And uh, then the, he took the cloak of Elijah, and he struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and the other, and Elisha went back by himself across that river, as he and Elijah had gone before. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. God's power still reaches us. The sons of the prophets watched them. There was witness to this. They saw him, and they saw that Elisha, with that cloak, had the same power from God that Elijah had had. And they were happy to have somebody with some spiritual godly power in their midst. And they pointed it out. Two principles. One, God's power is not tied to a particular era. This incident in the Bible is a reenactment of Joshua 3 and 4, when Jehovah cut the waters of the Jordan and Israel entered Canaan. It's a reenactment of that. That happened, oh, what, about 500 years apart? What we need to understand from this text and for our own life is the same God in 1400 B.C. is just as mighty as, as he is then in 850 B.C. God's power is not diminishing. God's power is not burning out like the sun, they say, is burning out. Uh, it's not getting old and feeble. God's not saying, I've got to find my own successor. God's power is the same power. He's the same God. And he showed that by this reenactment of the parting of the waters of the Jordan. In our day, we might be tempted to look around us in our discouragement. We might say, wow, God was pretty strong back there at Pentecost. Boy, I wish God did that kind of thing today. Boy, God, you should have seen God, the rushing wind, the cloven tongues as a fire on the people's head. Or we might say, wow, God really did a movement. He was still pretty strong back in the days of the Reformation when the gospel swept through the land and the Bible was translated into the language of the 
people there in Germany, and, and they read their own scriptures, and boy, revival swept. Uh, we might even say in our own lives, I remember when I was at that uh, church in that era back there in the 80s, and people came to the prayer meetings, and they testified about how great God was. And boy, I just, I'm so sorry, God's not as strong today. We learn from this passage, no, God's power is the same. We get old and feeble, not God. Another principle from this section, God's power is not limited to a certain instrument. And that's all that Elijah was. He was an instrument of God. He was God's instrument to do God's work and God's will. God wanted it done. He chose Elijah to do it. Good for Elijah, good for God. But God could do what God wants to do no matter what. So whether it's Elijah or Elisha, there goes Elijah in the whirlwind up to heaven. But here's the mantle falling on Elisha. God says, my power is the same. I'm just going to use Elisha as, as my spokesman right now in these times. That's all. In our church, we've seen some wonderful people come and go over the years. A church plant in a busy place where people move in and move out and move in and move out, and it can be kind of discouraging uh, at times in, in a human perspective. I can name a half dozen people just off the top of my head. I just thought of their names. People who've been here over the years, who've been moved to other places by God, relocated to other regions of the country with their families, and in some cases we've said, oh no, what will we do? Some of those people were generous with their finances, some with their time. Some had personalities that were calming and comforting, and you could see the Spirit working through them with certain people. And and, and you say, what are we going to do without them? Others just seem to possess a wisdom beyond their years, a spiritual wisdom. Uh, We'd say they know how to do church, but what we mean is they know the Lord, and they've they've, they've been filled with with, uh, how to live for God in, in the context of community. And, and uh, the old phrase, old heads on young shoulders, as the saying goes. Um, and we said, what will we do? How will this little church make it? This little church plant up here. And here we still sit, joining our voices in praising God as we've done, confessing our sins, uh, listening to his word, uh, getting strength to live our lives for the Lord, to share the gospel. Uh, it's not the instrument. It's not the people. It's God, God's will. And we've said all along, um, uh, this, this little church will stay open no longer than God wants us to, and we won't close till God says it's time to close. And so we can trust God because it's God's work, God's power and God's instrument, and God comforts us with his power. You've heard this illustration before, I'm sure, but, but um, I thought of it again. And I wrote this as I was sitting there smelling the coffee being made. We love the coffee pot, the radio, the electric blanket, the microwave oven, the hot water heater that gives us warm showers, the automatic ice maker, the garage door opener, and even the television set. We love those things. But you know what? Those are things that are plugged into something, a source of power. Without that power, uh, those would just mock us. God is the one who uses his instruments and his people to do his work. And that's the principle. Elijah, Elisha, you know, potato, potato. 
Uh, it doesn't matter. God's the one who uses his people. So while God is reaching us with his power, he is also settling us with his wisdom. So this is the last part of 15. Hey, keep her in here as long as you can. We love baby voices. That little Abigail is wonderful. It's good to hear her. So, so hang, hang in there. Uh, 15b to 18. This is God settling us with his wisdom. And they came to meet him, and they bowed to the ground before him, after they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Let us go and seek your master. Let's go look for Elijah. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And Elisha said, the Hebrew says, shut up. Uh, Translated, it says, you shall not send. Guys, you sons of the prophets, no. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. They therefore sent 50 men. And for three days they sought Elijah but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was still staying at Jericho. And he said to them, words we all hate when somebody says to us, but in this case it's appropriate, I told you so. He said, did I not say to you, don't go? God settles us with his wisdom. The sons of the prophets liked the power, or at least they were comfortable with Elijah having power. But they did not like the wisdom. They did not like the words of advice. They didn't like God's word as Elisha was God's spokesman in those days. Take that mantle, crack it on the Jordan, do some miracles, call down fire from heaven, and do with that. But listen, you want to give us some biblical wisdom? Sorry, we want to do our own thing. They were okay to say to Elisha, God's power rests on you. And at the same time to say, we think we're smarter than you and the Bible, and we want to go look for Elijah. Elijah was the new spokesman for God, and they did not want to submit to the biblical wisdom. Among God's people today, and the best way to look at this is these are God's people, true stories, every one. These are God's people. Think about not something national and political like nations, but think of the church. And think of a church that at one time professed God all over this country, saying the same creeds, maybe singing some of the same songs, and having no regard for God's wisdom and God's word. That's gone. We're going to do our own thing. We want the power. We want the voting block. We want all of these things, but we don't want God's wisdom. What gets sacrificed in our show of strength and in our numbers and our shrinking clout as a church, what gets sacrificed is just the basic wisdom of God's word. read this article by J.I. Packer from about 40 years ago. A friend of his had uh, come out of seminary with him, a guy who I've never, ever heard of. Uh, a guy named David Jenkins was his name, Packer's friend. Wrote a column in Christianity Today back when that was worth reading. He wrote a column called Satan Scores Twice. His friend had said this, When commending faith in the incarnate and risen Christ, it is best not to get hung up 
on the actuality of Christ's virgin birth or his bodily resurrection. Um, Bible's true, but don't get hung up on the virgin birth. Don't get hung up on the bodily resurrection, this man said. Packer says, one should, he thinks, uh, leave open the window of how physically Christ entered and left the world. Thus, my friend David finds it appropriate to sanction skepticism about what the opening and closing chapters of Matthew's and Luke's gospel tells us on these points. He himself, he says, is uncertain here. So here it is pretty clear in Scripture, like very clear, black and white. The problem isn't to understand what it says. The problem is to believe it. And uh, this friend says, well, I'm still... I'm still Trinitarian, according to the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God and three co-equal persons. He said, I'm still an incarnationalist. I still believe that Jesus came into the world. One person, two undiminished natures. And Packer says, but why the agnosticism on the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection? And the conclusion is, his friend thinks that by teaching some Christian facts as uncertain and smudging the outlines of doctrines of God, creation, sin, Christ, and salvation, you make the gospel easier for intellectuals to accept. And so we kind of are there on some things, we kind of smudge the other things and leave it open, and all of a sudden the wisdom that is there, just like the wisdom that Elisha had, they don't want the wisdom. They want the power and the strength and the show of force. Packer says the question for people like this is this. Since you believe so much of the Bible teaching, why do you not believe more? And since you believe so little of that message, why don't you believe less? So there is bitter irony in what has happened. Jenkins feels doubts that are a hangover from the bad old days. He thinks, as so many once did, that this skepticism enhances Christianity's intellectual credentials. He fails to see that his own understanding of a pre-existent, all-powerful God makes these doubts unnecessary and unreasonable. Listen, how do the British put it? In for a penny, in for a pound. You know, throw $5 in, throw $500 in. If you're in a little bit, be in for a lot. If you're a Christian, biblically, you believe that we are sinners in the sight of God, that there is uh, nothing left for us but hell, getting ahead of myself in the sermon, you believe all of these things that are, that are far-fetched to the world, just as well believe it all. If the Bible says it, believe it. Why say I believe this fantastic far-out thing but not this fantastic far-out thing? Um, with Christianity, you want the power, you get the wisdom. All or Nothing. Elisha didn't just have the power of God resting on him, he had the wisdom of God. And we as God's people don't simply delight in God's power, but in God's wisdom, which is here in Scripture for all of us to read. So God still reaches us with his power, God still settles us with his wisdom, and listen to this. Where's the gospel? Where's the gospel in this passage? Here it is, this point. God's grace still thrills us, verses 19 through 22. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. 
Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I've healed this water, and from now on neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, the time of the writing of Second Kings, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Um, we'll not get hung up on the, on the salt. Uh, the, you can, that, that'd be a good study for you yourself, and people have looked at the, uh, the imagery of that and why salt and all of these things. Uh, let's think more for this sermon about God's grace. Nice city, bad water. Better translation, the land suffers from miscarriages. It was more than just, you know, we're not getting enough soybeans per acre out of this farmland. Can you make it better for us? It wasn't that. It was there was a curse on the land, and, and the land suffers from miscarriages. And after he used the land to heal it, he said there's no more death and no more miscarriages and no more terrible things happening. So that's, that's even a reinforcement for that as a better translation than some of our English texts give us. The land is cursed. Well, where is Elisha? He's in Jericho. Jericho is a land that was cursed. When Jericho was marched around those seven times and three of the walls fell down and Rahab got to survive with her family, here's what was said in the book of Joshua, uh, chapter 6, verse 26. Cursed be the man before Yahweh, who rises up and shall rebuild the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he'll lay its foundations, and at the cost of his youngest, he'll set up its doors. A few hundred years later, people said, I don't believe in God and God's word and that old wives' tale and that curse. And so what happened? We read in 1 Kings 16.34, In Ahab's days, Hiel the Bethlehite rebuilt Jericho. At the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, he laid the foundation. At the cost of Segub, his youngest, he set up its doors in line with the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by the hand of Joshua, son of Nun. So it came true. Some entrepreneur, hey, it's looking kind of good around here. Hey, I'm going to rebuild the city. Maybe he didn't even know or nobody warned him or maybe somebody did and he blew it off. But he lost his firstborn son, lost his lastborn son. That's a true story. That's in the Bible. The place is under a curse. The land is cursed. They said, man, nice, beautiful view. We could sell a lot of property here. People could come on their vacations, except the land is a land of miscarriages and death. Now, here's what you need to to hear. God would rather heal than destroy. And the place that was under a curse now receives a blessing of grace. That pronouncement uh, and that land and that curse didn't always have to stay that way. Exodus, we got a story about water and bitter water being made sweet. Exodus 15, 22 through 26, I'll just read verse 26. uh, Saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. This is what God said after he made bitter water sweet. We have a New Testament passage that talks about death and destruction and being born under a curse and and, and living like we live and God being the one who chooses to heal his people. Romans 3, 21 through 26 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It's what we've been singing about and talking about all morning. Come back next week. We're going to sing about it and talk about it again. Come back the next week. You need a reminder. We're going to sing and talk about it again. We are sinners and God has saved us. God has saved us. It was to show his righteousness, Romans says, at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's the application to us in our life? There's hope for you. You don't have to get what you deserve. Yes, the wages of sin is death. You get your divine W-2 form, and it tells what you earn and what you owe, and what does it say? Here's what you've earned. Death, spiritual death, eternal death, apartness from God. We call it hell. The Bible calls it hell, so we call it hell. Uh, that is what is your earnings. We have a tax accountant in our congregation. He's running a special this month. He can't find you the loopholes because there's no loopholes, but he will pay all of your taxes out of his own pocket for you. Right, Rick? <laughs> okay, maybe not. Uh, you go to Jesus to take care. You take him that spiritual W-2 form. You see what you're owed, and he says, uh, I'll find you a loophole. Just be good enough. Be really more good than bad. No, Jesus never says that. He says, I'm the, I, I'm the perfect accountant, and there is no loophole. Thinking this morning about a woman I knew uh, when I was young, a young youth pastor. She was the mother of one of the kids in our, our church. That, that she didn't go to church or anything. Asked her one time, um, do you know that uh, if you were to die today, do you know if you'd go to heaven? She said, yes. I said, on what basis? She said, I believe that if, if anybody does one genuinely self-sacrificial act for somebody else, one in their lifetime that is totally selfless, then they'll go to heaven. And I wish I had asked her what her act was that she had done. I just, it's puzzled me all, all ever since. Uh, people believe things, but you take your earning statement to Jesus, and all he can do is say, no loopholes, but I'll pay it. I'll pay it. That's Jesus. Jesus says, I have the means to pay. Why? Because I was righteous and I did not sin against God and I'm not lined up uh, to bear the wrath of the Father along with you. I was tempted like you were, but I didn't sin. But I'm going to experience that on your behalf. I have the means to pay. I'll pay in full and I love you very much. And it's worth it to me. You are worth it for me to bear the wrath of God that I might bring you to glory. And so you repent and you place your faith in Jesus and you hear a variation on what we see in this text that we just read. Thus says the Lord, 
I have healed this water that is your life. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. You have been healed and forgiven. And now it really is a beautiful place to live in a beautiful life because you've been saved by Jesus. You've been healed by Jesus. Isaiah 30, 26. The Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and he heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. There's your gospel. God reaches us with his power. God settles us with his wisdom. He thrills us with his grace. And yet, he still frightens us with his judgment. And that's honestly not a bad thing. Listen to this. Here's the, here's the end. Last, last part of the chapter. Then we're going to conclude here. Verses 23 through 25. Elisha went up from there to Bethel. While he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around. When he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel. From there he returned to Samaria. God's judgment still frightens us. I want to say, that's just a metaphor. That's just an allegory. 42, where have I heard that before? Um, you know, I've heard it before. It's a science fiction book uh, uh, some of you have read. 42, maybe we'll just make this all allegory, and then let's just make the whole Bible allegory while we're at it. Or we can say, no, it is presented as history, as a thing that really happened, so it really happened. Let's deal with it then. So five things about this story where these 42 boys, uh, these Utes, uh, got uh, mauled to death. One, the group. In Hebrew, it says young lads. Some of the people I read who know their Hebrew say they might have been as young as 10 to 12 years old, maybe young teens. Second, the place, Bethel. Okay, Bethel means house of God, but it sure wasn't the house of God in those days. Bethel, you'll remember, was the center of Jeroboam's bull worship. Uh, He was sacrificing bulls. Baal was strong there. And these lads' mockery reflected their parents' hostility. Rocky Ray Hudson, a soccer player who I like to listen to from Newcastle. He's English, but he's got the Scottish accent, and he's a commentator on XM Radio on the, the soccer station. Told of a story about 40 years ago, and I even forgot the town. I just remembered the story, uh, where uh, it's back in the days of soccer hooliganism and, and violence, and this crowd in this European city, this soccer crowd was out of hand. And they were throwing things and they were hurling racial abuse and saying things and violence. And the soccer governing bodies said they have to play the next game uh, without anybody in the stands. That was their punishment, to punish the fans and try and get them in line. And then he said, somebody got the bright idea. Well, we hate to have this game go to waste. Let's let the school kids come in. And they brought the school kids in, the orphanage, and they were there with their adult people. But they got to watch the free soccer game. And he said the people were shocked. He said those little cherubs had worse language and worse behavior than the parents had had. And somebody said, this is a bad idea. This is part of the culture. And we can't just say the kids are okay. And so you think of a place where Baal has been worshipped, where the idols of the, the prophets of Baal have been killed on Mount Carmel. You hear the kids growing up in their homes, uh, hating Elijah, 
hating Elisha. And here's these kids in Bethel with this mob scene. So the group was young lads. The place was Bethel. Deliberate intent, verse 23b. Deliberate intent. He was going up to Bethel, and while he was going up in the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying. It's not like he was walking through town, and somebody yelled something at him, and somebody else yelled, and a few of them got together. No, he's walking up, and they came out, this mob of people, to harass him. The mockery, go up. Some people say it was a reference to Elijah going up because of the same Hebrew word. Uh, others say most likely it's just that the language is three times in that verse. He was going up to Bethel. He was going up. They were saying, get out of here, Baldy. Get out of here, Baldy. Get out of here. Go up. Keep on moving. We don't want you in our town. And it was, it was a, a bad year. So whichever way it went, whatever was their basis, uh, they were there was not a mostly peaceful demonstration either, by the way. Uh, this was something when you get mobs together and you get people coming together and people starting and one person does something and you read the study of mobs, uh, I'm telling you, stay away from a mob. Stay away from mobs. You'll get caught up in something you didn't even believe you were doing. And here they were, all these people, jeering, hateful. Then look at the number of fatalities. And you look, and, and I bet your translation got it right. The ones I looked at got it right. It does not say all 42 kids were killed by the bears. What does it say? It says 42 of the kids were killed by the bears. Think of if 42 of them were mauled, how many would there have been? What kind of a situation was this? It's a riot. Dr. Davis says in verses 23 and 24 then, responsible young lads were expressing abuse, contempt, and hostility toward Yahweh's representative, and they knew they were doing so. And the result? Turns around, curses them in the name of the Lord, two she-bears come out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. Um, Curse was in the name of Yahweh. Wasn't Elisha that did it. Elisha didn't have that power. If God didn't want to do it, God wouldn't have done it. God did it. Leviticus 26, 22. I will let loose the wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children. And I'm saying, be careful. Be careful. Hating God and God's representative. Despising his power and his wisdom. Persisting in the worldly Baal culture will bring a covenant curse. It's one thing to be working through your beliefs. It's one thing to say, this happened to me, and how could God do this to me? And I don't believe God is really uh, who he says he is. He's not my, my friend. I can't turn to him. I'm questioning. I want, I want to believe in God. I hope for God. It's one thing to say that and, and be working through that. And boy, uh, that's, that's similar to, to the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. This is different. It's another thing to join a mocking anti-God world in ridiculing God and his people and understand that God's word can bring healing and God's word can bring a curse. 
Boy, they used to teach us that song in Sunday school. Maybe some of you from my generation heard this in Sunday school. We'd sing as little kids, one door and only one, yet its sides are two. Inside and outside, on which side are you? One door and only one, yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside, on which side are you? And that's a good question to ask yourself when you see that God is the God who can heal and bring restoration and stop the land from its miscarriaging or the God who can say, you've crossed the line. There's a line, you crossed it. And lest any of us are foolish enough to say, well, that's just the Old Testament. Let's hear Jesus at the end of the New Testament saying exactly the same thing, the all or nothing thing. Revelation 2, 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so Jesus is also in the all or nothing camp. So in this chapter, we've come full circle. This is why I preached it and didn't break it up. Here they are, Elijah and Elisha. They're starting out. They're going to Bethel. They go to Jericho. They cross the Jordan. Elijah goes to heaven. Elisha comes back, crosses the Jordan, goes to Jericho, heals the land on his way to Bethel. And, 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 uh, and there's where the, the youths uh, get in their trouble. And you see the completion of God. And I, I'm just saying this as we, as we get ready for the table. Uh, I'll read what I wrote. Hopefully it makes sense. In your travels in life, whether you consider your life in terms of your geographical wandering, Bethel, Jordan, Jericho, Jordan, and back again, or whether you focus on your social interactions as you look at your life, the mentor prophet Elijah, the sons of the prophets, the mocking of the world, or if you're looking at your life as we do sometimes in terms of our growth and responsibilities, from prophet's apprentice to prophet's replacement, there is one constant of whom you must be aware, and that is the constant God to whom you will give account. And the question is this, why would you try to live a life as God's enemy when he calls you to repent, place your faith in Jesus, and become his friend? Why, why that choice? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this chapter, this interesting chapter. Uh, thank you for your power. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your restoring uh, of us who were under a curse of sin and forgiven and healed because of Jesus. And thank you for the reminder that we want to be Christians in a world that mocks Christians.